Welcome to the Inside Scoop Podcast. It's your boy Scoop. This episode is pretty heavy, very close to my heart. I want to dedicate this episode to my great-grandfather, who was born in Edgefield County, South Carolina, moved he and his wife up to Washington, D.C. They raised 13 children together. His name is Jefferson Davis Yeldale. Happy Juneteenth, everybody. Stay tuned for the rest of the episode. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. There's been one byproduct of the Black Lives Matter movement in response after the deaths of Armand Arbery, Breon Taylor, and George Floyd that is very close to my spirit. Something I am so vehemently for that it gives me chills. And that's the removal of Confederate flags and memorials. I've been advocating for this publicly since the Charleston massacre in 2015, five years ago from this past Wednesday. Uh, Dylan Roof had many pictures with the Confederate flag and many white supremacy writings. I went to Facebook to discuss my disdain of the flag and all that it stands for. And in doing so, I was reminded by my cousin about a historical picture. In the 1850s, there was dissension among uh, the ranks about the act of slavery in the United States between Republicans from the North and Democrats from the South. It would reach a boiling point in 1856. On May 20th, Charles Sumner, an abolitionist and U.S. Senator from Massachusetts, gave an anti-slavery speech entitled The Crime Against Kansas, in which he characterized South Carolina Senator Andrew Butler as a pimp for slavery. Two days later, Preston Brooks, a U.S. representative from South Carolina and cousin of Butler, uh, brutally attacked Sumner with a cane in the Senate chamber. The attack left Sumner unable to resume office for three years. This violent attack created a direct split between Southerners who applauded Brooks's violence and protection for slavery and Northerners who were appalled by it. Brooks' act is considered the first major catalyst for the divide that would eventually cause a civil war. Well, my cousin sent me a photo. It was an artist's rendition of that incident. Now, I vaguely remember that story from U.S. history class and the following picture that she sent, you know, uh, it became more familiar. But it wasn't until that day, June 20th, 2015, that I learned that Brooks, the man whose actions lit the spark that caused the Civil War, was the man who owned my great-great-grandmother in Edgefield County, South Carolina. I sat in silence for about an hour. I was horrified. I was shocked. I was completely shook up. I am directly associated with this vile human being. And then less than a week later, the Daily Show host, John Stewart, went on The Daily Show and gave a monologue that put something, you know, put words to something that I previously could not identify. See, as a native of Washington, D.C., we have a strong aversion to the state of Virginia. For my whole life, people in my city just have this strong, certain disdain for the state. Not so much the people, but the state itself. We'll claim we only go there to shop at a few malls, Potomac Mills, Pentagon City, um, and to fly out since two of our major airports are there, Dulles and National Airport. 
Um, I've had many friends move to this area and settle in Virginia, and my first words are, well, I guess I won't be seeing your house then. And, and if you know anybody from D.C., more than likely you get a sim similar sentiment. Um, and as a kid, it was just a thing. As a young adult, it was watch out for the cops in Virginia. But it had to be something more for so many people to feel this type of way that were from D.C. And, well, John Stewart's words about the Charleston massacre connected it for me. This is a terrorist attack. This is a, a violent attack on the Emanuel Church in South Carolina, which is a symbol uh, for the black community. It has stood uh, in that part of Charleston for a hundred and some years and has been attacked viciously many times, as many black churches have. And to pretend that, I, I heard someone on the news say, well, tragedy has visited this church. This, this wasn't a tornado. This was a racist. This was a guy with a Rhodesia badge on his sweater. And, you know, so the idea that we're, you know, I hate to even use this pun, but this one is black and white. It's, there's no nuance here. This is, uh, and, and we're gonna keep pretending like, I don't get it, what happened? This one guy lost his mind, but this, we are steeped in that culture in this country and we refuse to recognize it. And I cannot believe how hard people are working to discount it. Uh, in South Carolina, the roads that black people drive on are named for Confederate generals who fought to keep black people from being able to drive freely on that road. That's, that's insanity. That's racial wallpaper. That's, that's, you can't allow that. You know, nine people were shot in a black church by a white guy who hated them, who wanted to start some kind of civil war. The Confederate flag flies over South Carolina and the roads are named for Confederate generals. And the white guy's the one who feels like his country's being taken away from him. Racial wallpaper. I repeat, racial wallpaper. I never ever thought of it like that. Never thought of any of this in that way. And then I remember that the first real exit into Virginia from DC on I-395 is Jefferson Davis Highway. And it clicked. I have friends who went to high schools named after Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson in Northern Virginia. This racial wallpaper is far more prevalent in Virginia than DC. And it hit home. I've seen people respond to the taking down of Confederate flags and memorials with negativity claiming that we're erasing history and that the flag is for Southern pride. This goes with the commonly heard statement that the Confederacy was about states' rights. This podcast is gonna go in depth to clarify the true meaning behind the Confederacy, its symbols, its memorials, and why I'm adamant for the federal government to take them down immediately. In order to discuss the Confederacy, you obviously have to discuss the Civil War. So after the Brooks Sumner incident, the dissension grew larger. In 1857, Dred Scott versus Sanford held that the US Constitution was not meant to include American citizenship for black people, regardless of whether they were enslaved or free. And so the rights and privileges that the Constitution confers upon American citizens could not apply to them. The Dred Scott case was predicated upon the Missouri Compromise of 1820 
which was prohibited, which prohibited slavery south of the 36-30 parallel. This case made the Missouri Compromise unconstitutional. After the reaction to the Dred Scott ruling, which brought a visceral negative response in every area of the United States, except for slaveholding states. The national debate on slavery just got worse. Heading into the next presidential election, the anti-slavery Republican Party selected Abraham Lincoln as his candidate on a platform that he would not touch slavery in current territories, but oppose the expansion of slavery to new territories. The Democratic Party nominated Stephen Douglas, a senator from Illinois who backed the idea of popular sovereignty, which called for each individual territory to decide on the status of slavery. This stance alienated Southern Democrats who, with the help of President James Buchanan, held their own Democratic National Convention and nominated Vice President John Breckinridge from Kentucky. Breckinridge was selected amongst five other candidates, one of which was a senator from Mississippi named Jefferson Davis. On November 6, 1860, Abraham Lincoln became the 16th President of the United States. Just 13 days later, on November 19th, Henry Benning, an associate judge in the Georgia Supreme Court, gave a statement in favor of succession on the final evening of the Georgia State Assembly. And he said the following words. My first proposition is that the election of Mr. Lincoln to the presidency of the United States means the abolition of slavery as soon as the party which elected him shall acquire the power to do the deed. My second proposition is that the North will soon acquire that power unless something is done to prevent it. I dare say everyone present will agree that this is almost a self-evident proposition. It follows that there is not within the Union any remedy by which we can escape abolition, and therefore if we wish for a remedy, a remedy we must seek outside of the Union. If you were to separate from the North, the power to abolish slavery by the North would be taken away. That is clear. The will to do so would also cease. Just one month after this speech, and just under two months since Lincoln's election, South Carolina became the first state to succeed. On Christmas Eve, December 24, 1860, the specific issue stated was the refusal of some states to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which required the slaves be returned to their owners, even if they were in a free state. The act also made the federal government responsible for finding, returning, and trying escaped slaves. The other issue was, were clauses in the U.S. Constitution protecting slavery and the federal government's perceived role in attempting to abolish slavery. In reference to the failure of the northern states to uphold the Fugitive Slave Act, South Carolina states the primary reason for succession as follows. The right of property in slaves was recognized by giving two free persons distinct political rights by giving them the right to represent and burthening them with direct taxes for three-fifths of their slaves, by authorizing the importation of slaves for 20 years and by stipulating for the rendition of fugitives from labor. We affirm that these ends from which this government was instituted have been defeated, and the government itself has been made destructive of them by the action of the non-slaveholding states. Those states have assumed 
the right of deciding upon the property of our domestic institutions and have denied the rights of property established in 15 of the states and recognized by the Constitution. They have encouraged and assisted thousands of our slaves to leave their homes, and those who remain have been incited by emissaries, books, and pictures to survive insurrection. A geographical line has been drawn across the Union, and the states north of that line have united in the election of a man to the high office of the President of the United States, whose opinions and purposes are hostile to slavery. He is to be entrusted with the administration of the common government because he has declared that the government cannot endure permanently half-slave, half-free, and the public mind must rest in the belief that slavery is in the course of ultimate extinction. This sectional combination for the submersion of the Constitution has been aided in some of the states by elevating to citizenship persons who, by supreme law of the land, are incapable of becoming citizens. And their votes have been used to inaugurate a new policy, hostile to the South and destructive of its belief and safety. On the fourth day of March next, this party will take possession of the government. It has announced that the South shall be excluded from the common territory, that a war must be waged against slavery until it shall cease throughout the United States. The guarantees of the Constitution will then no longer exist. The equal rights of states will be lost. The slaveholding states will no longer have the power of self-government or self-protection, and the federal government will have become their enemy. I wanted to read that long aspect of their declaration to point out a few things. They mentioned the three-fifths um, three statute. Um, in addition, they mentioned that they have encouraged that the Union, or what will become the Union, have encouraged and assisted thousands of our slaves to leave their homes. Those who remain have been incited by, by emissaries, books, and pictures to survive insurrection. So it's saying is that the North is educating our slaves to leave through books and encouraging them through words for them to now, no longer be property and free themselves. In addition, it says that, that the Constitution is trying to uh, elevate to citizenship people by the supreme law of the land that are incapable of becoming citizens. So once again, in the mindset of South Carolina, slaves should never be citizens based on the supreme law of the land. Um, and also, it just discussed how the slaveholding states in particular are becoming the enemy of the North. And for all these reasons, they decided to secede from the Union. So following South Carolina, the original states to succeed were Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas. The Confederate States of America was provisionally constituted on February 8, 1861. At the Virginia Secession Convention on February 18th, Henry Benning, who spoke before, who I talked about before, um, in explaining the reasoning for Georgia's decision to secede from the Union, stated the following. 
What was the reason that induced Georgia to take the step of succession? This reason may be summed up in one single proposition. It was a conviction, a deep conviction on the part of Georgia that a separation from the North was the only thing that could prevent the abolition of her slavery. This conviction, sir, was the main cause. If it had not been for the first conviction, this step would have never been taken. It is probable that the white race, being superior in every respect, may push the other back. If you were to separate from the North, the power to abolish slavery by the North will be taken away. In Georgia's official declaration of succession, in referring to the Confederacy, it stated the prohibition of slavery in the territories is the cardinal principle of this organization. Between Benning and Georgia's declaration of succession, they make it very clear, one, Benning believes that the white race is superior in every respect to the black race, and that the prohibition of slavery is the cardinal reason for them joining the Confederacy and for the Confederacy to be formed altogether. Mississippi states in their declaration of secession, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. Its labor supplies a product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce of the earth. These products are peculiar to the climate verging on the tropical regions and by an impervious law of nature, none but the black race can bear exposure to the tropical sun. These products have become necessities of the world and a blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. That blow has been long aimed at the institution and was at the point of reaching its consummation. There was no choice left us but submission to the mandates of abolition or dissolution of the union whose principles had been subverted to work out our ruin. Alabama states, it is the desire and purpose of the people of Alabama to meet the slaveholding states of the South who may approve such purpose in order to frame a provisional as well as permanent government under, oh, I'm sorry, upon the principles of the Constitution of the United States. Virginia says, the people of Virginia in their ratification of the Constitution of the United States of America, having declared that the powers granted under said Constitution were derived from the people of the United States, must be resumed whensoever the same should be perverted to their injury and oppression. And the federal government, having perverted said powers, not only to the injury of the people of Virginia, but to the oppression of Southern slaveholding states. Texas. Texas was received into the Confederacy with her own constitution under the guarantee of the federal constitution and the compact of annexation that she would enjoy these blessings. She has received correction. She was received as a Commonwealth holding, maintaining and protecting the institution known as Negro slavery, the servitude of the African to the white race within her limits a relationship that had existed from the first settlement or her wilderness by the white race and which her people intended should exist in all future time. 
Her institutions and geographical position established the strongest ties between her and other slaveholding states of the Confederacy. Those ties have been strengthened by association. In his previous un unpublished Declaration of Causes, Governor Madison Stark Perry wrote this on behalf of Florida. That no more slave states shall be admitted into the Confederacy and that the slaves from their rapid increase, the highest evidence of the humanity of their owners, will become valueless. Nothing is more certain than this, and at no distant day, what must be the condition of the slaves themselves when their number becomes so large that their labor will be of no value to their owners. Their natural tendency everywhere shown where the race has existed to idleness vagrancy and crime increased by an inability to procure substance. These are the first seven states in their declarations for succession for the Confederacy. The official speech for the Confederacy, known as the Cornerstone Address, was given by Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens on March 21st, 1861 in Savannah, Georgia, and he states, the new constitution has put at rest forever all the agitating questions related to our peculiar institution, African slavery as it exists amongst us, the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. They rested upon the assumption of the equality of races. This was an error. It was a sandy foundation and the idea of a government built upon it when the storm came and the wind blew it fell our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite ideas its foundations are laid its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the negro is not equal to the white man that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition this, our new government, is the first in, in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. Our confederacy is founded upon principles in strict conformity with these laws. This stone, which was rejected by the first builders, is become the chief of the corner, the real cornerstone in our new edifice. Stevens clearly states that the Confederacy is the first government in the history of the world based upon the premise that the Negro is not equal to the white man and that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. Once again, this is the official address for the Confederacy. Four states. Virginia, Arkansas, Tennessee, and North Carolina, and one territory, Arizona, later joined the Confederacy. On April 12, 1861, just three weeks after the Cornerstone Address, the Confederates attacked Fort Sumter in South Carolina and thus began the Civil War. Now let's talk about the Confederate flag. The Confederate flag as we know it is the second rendition of the flag of the Confederate States of America. Referred to as the Stainless Banner, it was adopted on May 1st, 1863. Its first official use was when it was draped on the coffin of General Thomas J. Jackson, better known as Stonewall Jackson, 
on May 12, 1863. Due to this, many referred to it as the Jackson flag. It had previously been the battle flag for the Army of Northern Virginia, led by General Robert E. Lee in 1861. This army was the largest Confederate army during the Civil War, and its association with General Robert E. Lee also added to its popularity. To conserve material, this flag went from rectangular to square. The rectangular version became the battle flag from the Army of Tennessee under General Joseph Johnston. This version of the flag is the one we know today as the Confederate flag. It was later adopted to the Mississippi State flag in 1894, becoming the first state to incorporate it into its flag. Now at this point, the Confederate flag was not always flown the way that we know it to be now. Um, its popularity is specifically tied to the Civil Rights Movement. Anytime African Americans advocate for equality or equity, the flag becomes more popular. It began in the 1930s when Congress almost passed an anti-lynching bill. The flag came out. In 1948, the Dixiecrats, the segregational arm of the Southern Democrats, began to use it when Strom Thurmond, then governor of South Carolina, ran as their presidential candidate. Thurmond, a native of Edgefield County, South Carolina, would later make national news for having a child out of wedlock with a black woman. That woman and their child are also relatives of mine. In 1950, it began to be a symbol of white identity and was being mass commercialized on products. In 1956, Georgia adopted a new state flag that incorporated the Confederate flag just two years after Brown versus Board of Education. It was also waived prominently when the United States, I'm sorry, when the University of Mississippi attempted to integrate in the 1960s with James Meredith. And any time schools were being integrated after Brown versus Board of Education, the flag was in the hands of, of many people protesting and wanting to keep schools segregated. In 1962, during the epicenter of the Civil Rights Movement, South Carolina placed the flag on top of their state capitol, claiming to honor the 100th anniversary of the Civil War. But when the anniversary left, it still stood and did for another 50 years until Bree Newsom climbed the flagpole and removed it in 2015, following the Charleston Massacre. In the study of Confederate symbols in the contemporary Southern United States, the Southern pol uh, political scientists James Michael Martinez, William Donald Richardson, and Ron McNitch Sue wrote, the battle flag was never adopted by the Confederate C Congress, never flew over any state capitals during the Confederacy, and was never officially used by Confederate veterans groups. The flag probably would have been relegated to Civil War museums if it had not been resurrected by the, re by the resurgent KKK and used by Southern Dixiecrats during the 1948 presidential election. So speaking of the KKK, let's briefly discuss them as well. The Klan was created on December 24, 1865 in Pulaski, Tennessee, just six months after the end of the Civil War, but most importantly, just 18 days after the 13th Amendment which abolished slavery except for as punishment of a crime, was ratified. The first imperial wizard of the Klan was Nathan Bedford Forrest, a Confederate Army general from Tennessee. In April 1864, at the Battle of Fort Pillow in Henning, Tennessee, 
Forrest massacred over 300 black Union soldiers. After the war, the Klan's main activity was voter suppression of newly freed blacks in the South for the 1868 elections and killing Republicans and outspoken freedmen. During the 1868 election, James Hines won the seat to represent Arkansas's 2nd District as a, as a member of the House of Representatives. Just a year before, Hines successfully advocated for constitutional provisions establishing the right to vote for adult freed slaves and public education for both black and white children. Due to his stance against slavery and for being a proponent for Union Army General Ulysses S. Grant's presidential campaign, he was targeted by the KKK. In October 1868, just four months after taking office, Hines was assassinated by George Clark, the secretary of the Monroe County Democratic Party and a local Klansman. Hines became the first member of Congress to be assassinated in United States history, and Clark was never arrested nor convicted. Hear me out. The first member of Congress to be assassinated in U.S. history was killed by a member of the Ku Klux Klan, and he was a white man himself. Keep that in mind. Grant won the 1868 presidential election, and as president, he stabilized the national economy after the war, created the Department of Justice, which allowed the federal government to prosecute the Ku Klux Klan. As a matter of fact, him creating the Department of Justice, one of the major focuses was to prosecute the Ku Klux Klan. In October 1870, Attorney General Amos Ackerman and Solicitor General Benjamin Bristow made hundreds of arrests in South Carolina and forced 2,000 Klansmen out of state. By 1871, the Klan had fizzled out. I want to add this about Ulysses S. Grant, too, because he doesn't get talked about enough in history. So in addition to Grant's prominence, um, you know, kind of being understated, especially when it comes to African-Americans, uh, I want to, like I said, I want to want to bring this up. On March 18th, 1869, Grant signed into law equal rights for blacks to serve on juries and hold office in Washington, D.C. In 1870, he signed into law the Naturalization Act that gave foreign black citizenship as well. He ratified the 15th Amendment, which stated states could not disenfranchise African-Americans. And he also appointed African-Americans and Jewish Americans to prominent federal offices and created the first civil service commission. I just want Ulysses S. Grant to get credit as far as trying to move the country forward after the war and incorporating African-Americans and freed slaves into that now back to the Klan. The Klan did not reemerge until 1915 with the release of Birth of a Nation, which was prominently showed the Klan and Confederate flags throughout the film. This movie, which was based on the 1905 book The Klansman, a historical romance of the Ku Klux Klan, written by Thomas Dixon, depicted the Klan as saviors to the South against Northern carpetbaggers and immoral freed slaves were not only ignorant and overly sexualized, but also portrayed by white actors in blackface. These hooded men on horses donned Confederate battle flags and engaged in cross burnings. The movie which was screened in the East Room of the White House with President Woodrow Wilson and members of his cabinet single-handedly revitalized the Klan into the public eye. It also served as the greatest propaganda for the lost cause ideology about the South's reasoning for succession 
and also forged a synonymous relationship with the Confederate flag and the Klan. After the movie was released, a Georgia man named William Simmons became inspired and began planning a resurgence of the organization. His planning coincided with the lynching of Leo Frank on August 16, 1915. Frank, a northern Jew who worked as a manager at a pencil factory, had been sentenced to death for allegedly murdering one of his faculty members. After Frank was given a life sentence, he was taken from prison and lynched by an angry mob. Two months after this, on Thanksgiving night, Simmons organized a group of men to restart the Klan. They marched on Stone Mountain in Georgia to burn a cross and inaugurate the new Klan with 15 charter members. This cross burning was seen in the film, but prior to this night on Stone Mountain, it had not previously been publicly associated with the Klan. As a matter of fact, this specific cross burning on Stone Mountain is the first ever public instance of cross burning in American history. It's specifically a situation of life imitating art. And now it's become synonymous with the Klan. Over the next few years, thousands of members joined the Klan, expanding to industrial cities in the Midwest. The Klan was op opposed to new immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, who were mostly Jews and Roman Catholics, and anybody who was not a native-born Anglo-Saxon or Celtic Protestant. So think of the term wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, is pretty much all that was allowed to join the Klan. Now let's talk memorials. Across the United States, there are an estimated 1,741 public symbols of the Confederacy, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. These symbols include schools, parks, bridges, roads, statues, and more. 771 of these are statues. These symbols are in 31 states and the District of Columbia, far more than the 11 of the Confederate States of America, which is even more problematic when you think about it. Since the end of the Civil War, there have been two major spikes in Confederate memorials being erected, 1900 to 1918 and 1954 to 65. What happened in those years? Lift Every Voice and Sing was written in 1900. Booker T. Washington's National Negro Business League was founded in 1900, along with Nanny Helen Burroughs' Women Com uh, Women's Convention of the National Baptist Convention. And so was the NAACP later on in 1909. Uh, the Chicago Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier, and the New York Amsterdam News, three of the most historic black-owned newspapers were established between 1905 and 1909. Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery and W.E.B. Du Bois' book, Souls of Black Folks, were written during this time period. Maggie Walker opened her first bank in Richmond, Virginia, and Madam C.J. Walker began selling hair care products. All in all, that period was the beginning of the establishment of black freedom through businesses, organizations, and communication. Towards the end of this spike was the Great Migration, which began in 1916 as a mass exodus of black people from the South to other places across the country. There's a direct correlation to these memorials being erected and the mindset of black people realizing the South was showcasing their oppressive force and then deciding to leave. At this point in time, Jim Crow laws ruled the South. Then once again in 1954, Brown v. Board of Education happened, which integrated schools in the United States. In addition to the flags being waved to protest to the Brown case, and while black students began enrolling at previously all-white schools, 
more memorials began to be erected with its spike happening in 1963. To put into context, Emmett Till was murdered in 1955. The Birmingham bus boycott began soon thereafter and the March on Washington was in 1963. According to a Mother Jones article in February 2019, 138 Confederate symbols had been removed until that point. In the weeks since George Floyd's death, an additional 44 had been removed. We still have 1,500 more to go. One of the major Confederate memorials is a massive carving, Mount Rushmore-style memorial of Lee, Jackson, and Confederate President Jefferson Davis riding horses. This carving, which is the largest Confederate memorial in the country, is etched in the side of Stone Mountain, which I mentioned before is the birthplace of the revitalized Ku Klux Klan. Another major memorial isn't just one, it's a whole string of them. Monumental Avenue in Richmond, the former capital of the Confederacy, is a street aligned with several Confederate memorials. Governor Ralph Northam recently announced that he would take down the memorial of Robert E. Lee, but as of Thursday, June 18th, a judge filed an injunction to prevent him from doing so. The other memorials on that street are of Davis, and Confederate Generals Stonewall Jackson, Jeb Stewart, and Matthew Fontaine Maury, all of which also have had high schools named after them in the state of Virginia. Stewart High School and Falls Church was changed to Justice High School in 2018, but the others remain. In addition, Virginia began celebrating Lee's birthday, which is January 19th, as a state holiday in 1893, and then Stonewall Jackson's birthday, which is January 21st, in 1904, merging the two celebrations into Lee Jackson Day. Ironically, 80 years later, in 1983, Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday became a federal holiday during the same weekend. Virginia then celebrated Lee Jackson King Day until 2000 when they separated the days. Lee Jackson Day was honored on that Friday and King Day was on that Monday. In January 2020, just a couple months ago, 116 years after being celebrated together, the Virginia Senate finally eliminated a holiday. 116 years of celebrating Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson's birthday just ended five months ago. And since 1994, the month of April commemorates Confederate History Month in Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Virginia. Several others began celebrating later. Georgia in 95, Texas in 99, and Florida in 2007. From 1917 to 1942, the U.S. Army began naming military bases after Confederate soldiers, and there are 10 in total. I mentioned Henry Benning before with his speeches about succession, before they succeeded and after Georgia succeeded. Well, he is the same Benning that Fort Benning in Columbus, Georgia is named after. This fort was built on a plantation and the camp commander lives in the former plantation house. In 1917, Camp Beauregard in Louisiana was named after Pierre G.T. Beauregard, the first prominent general in the Confederate Army. And Camp Lee, named after Robbie Lee, was built that same year. And it was later rebuilt in 1940. Fort Bragg in North Carolina was named in 1918 after Braxton Bragg, an officer who resigned from the Army in 1856 to become a plantation owner and then became a Confederate officer. For A.P. Hill, which was established in 1940, was named after Antoine Powell Hill Jr. 
Fort Polk, Fort Gordon, and Fort Pickett were built in 1941, Fort Rucker and Fort Hood in 1942. Leonidas Polk, John Brown Gordon, George Pickett, John Bell Hood were all Confederate generals, and Edmund Rucker was a colonel. Hill and Polk both died in battle. Gordon served as governor of Georgia and twice served as a U.S. senator, becoming the first ex-Confederate to preside over the Senate. Pickett, after the war, fled to Canada, but was allowed to return by Ulysses S. Grant. Hood was the youngest soldier on either side of the war to be given command of an army. And Rucker was captured in the Battle of Nashville, but Nathan Bedford Forrest got him back in the prisoner exchange. And after the war, he and Forrest worked together in a railroad business in Memphis. All of these forts were named during a period when the military itself was still segregated. And in the case of Benning and Bragg, these are arguably the Army's flagship bases, serving as home of the Infantry, Airborne, and Special Operations Forces. The Army isn't the only military branch that has this problem also. The U.S. Navy has two of its fleet carriers named after segregationist con congressmen, Senator John Stennis from Mississippi and Representative Carl Vincent from Georgia. Both of them signed the Southern Manifesto in support of school segregation in response to Brown versus Board of Education. Stennis himself opposed the civil rights legislation in the 1950s, opposed the Civil Rights Act, and opposed the Voter Rights Act. By the way, Lyndon B. Johnson and Al Gore Sr. also signed the Southern Manifesto. I'm going to get on that later. And as you can see, one of the most memorialized Confederate generals is Robert E. Lee. As many people claim that Lee should continue to be memorialized because he was against slavery but fought for the Confederacy. Well, in a letter in 1856, he makes his, plain, his views very, very plain. In this enlightened age, there are few, I believe, but will acknowledge that slavery as an institution is a moral and political evil in any country. It is useless to expatiate on its disadvantages. I think, however, a greater evil to the white man than to the black race. And while my feelings are strongly enlisted in behalf of the latter, my sympathies are more strong for the former. The blacks are immeasurably better off here than in Africa, morally, socially, and physically. The painful discipline they are undergoing is necessary for their instruction as a race, and I hope I'll prepare and lead them to better things. There's an article in The Atlantic that was written by Adam Surer in 2017 that describes Lee as a slave owner. By 1860, he had broken up every family that he had owned, but for one on the estate. And as a general, there's evidence that links virtually every infantry and cavalry unit in Lee's army to the abduction of free black Americans with the activity under the supervision of senior officers. In October 1864, Lee proposed an exchange of prisoners with Union General Ulysses S. Grant. Grant agreed on condition that black soldiers be exchanged the same as white soldiers. Lee's response was that Negroes belonging to our citizens are not considered subjects of exchange and were not included in my proposition. Grant refused the offer. Lee had beaten and ordered his own slaves to be beaten for the crime of wanting to be free. He fought for the preservation of slavery. His armies kidnapped free black people at gunpoint and made them unfree. 
But all of this, he insisted, had occurred only because of the great Christian love the South held for black Americans. Lee counseled others to hire white labor instead of freedmen, observing that wherever you find the Negro, everything is going down around him. And wherever you find a white man, you see everything around him improving. That's his direct quote. Publicly, Lee argued against the enfranchisement of black Americans and raged against Republican efforts to enforce racial equality in the South. Lee told Congress that black people lacked the intellectual capacity of white people and could not vote intelligently, and that granting them suffrage would excite unfriendly feelings between the two races. Lee explained that the Negroes have neither the intelligence nor the other qualifications which are necessary to make them safe depositories of political power. Lee was not a benevolent man who found who fought for his state against his own thoughts. He vehemently believed in the cause of not just slavery but white supremacy, and the gaslighting and rebranding around his character is one of the greatest successes of the lost cause, which is the false ideology that the Civil War was just to protect the states' rights of the southern states and northern aggression against the southern way of life. Now, with 1,700 Confederate memorials in this country honoring men who fought for slavery and white supremacy, do you know how many Nazi memorials there are in Germany? Just guess, how many Nazi memorials do you think you are in Germany right now? There's zero. That's right, zero. And that's how many should be in this country. You don't get to fight against the United States and then be honored for it, let alone why you fought against our country. Imagine women attending Harvey Weinstein High School or seeing R. Kelly's statue at the Illinois State Courthouse. Imagine Jews fighting for our army and being stationed at Fort Hitler or seeing Nazi flags hanging from the New York State Capitol in Albany. Imagine Hawaiians having parks named after Isoroku Yamamoto, the Japanese admiral who oversaw the bombing of Pearl Harbor, or New Yorkers driving on Osama Bin Laden Avenue just blocks from ground zero. Unfathomable. The Civil War was fought for the sole purpose of Southern slaveholding states, feeling that Lincoln's election would abolish slavery. The Confederate flag, a battle flag for the Army of Northern Virginia, the largest Confederate army, led by the arguably the most famous Confederate general, Robert E. Lee, is a direct sign of not only the Confederate States of America, but a direct public display of white supremacy. And the only Southern pride associated with it is its, its attachment to these Southern states' willingness to support slavery. And the Ku Klux Klan is, and always has been, a domestic terrorist organization. It's time to take all of this down. Take down all the references in history books of the quote-unquote war on Northern aggression, or war of Northern aggression. Take down the flag in any level of public display. The Confederate names on all memorials, be they parks, be they streets, be they schools, statues, anything associated with Confederate, and immediately declared the KKK for what it truly is, a domestic terrorist organization. And anybody associated with it, or any white supremacist groups, should be arrested. 
Remove all Confederate statues from courthouses, parks, and monuments. Rename every school, street, park, and military base that is currently named after a Confederate soldier or sympathizer. It's time to learn the true history about the Civil War, but in books and possibly museums, but never ever display these people in public. Like Bree Newsom did on that flagpole in 2015, it's time to take down every lasting public legacy of the Confederacy. They should have never been honored and memorialized to begin with. Take it down. It took me a long time to research this information, everything that you just heard. Um, I kept diving in, I kept reading things, and as much as you know, someone who loves history and someone who's African-American, I know the true meaning behind the Civil War, the Confederate flag, and the, and the KKK, but to see some of this stuff in print, um, it almost brought tears to my eyes. You know, seeing states specifically say that they went to war not just to protect their right to own human beings and not just to make a profit from the labor of these human beings and not just that these human beings somehow in their own mind were more equipped with the working conditions that were necessary for this type of labor but that they had a warped sense that through their Christianity, that this was a divine order of how things should be. And then to go for over 150 years and have the federal government allow any states to celebrate people that think this way, that not only were so vehemently for this way of life, but they killed thousands of Americans to fight for this. And we have allowed them to be honored. And we have gaslighted the reason for why they went to war to begin with. With everything that's going on in the world right now, and there's a lot of things people are donating more money to, to different institutions. Um, people are celebrating Juneteenth. Um, you're seeing all these, all these different types of, of public displays of support. But this is one aspect of this that I absolutely love is happening, but it needs to happen rapidly. And, and the type of dissension that people have around the confederacy and people saying oh you forget history that's what books are for in Germany kids take tours of of concentration camps to learn about how bad Germany was during World War II they grow up with that shame of what their their country did to other people and we act like it didn't exist. We act like that was, oh, that was, that was back then. But yet we want to celebrate these people for fighting against us. And fighting for slavery. In some sense of Southern pride. But yet, you want that out there, but you, you don't think you can learn this in a book? 
the same way we learn about World War II. I mean, it's just it's 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 unfathomable to me, and I don't think the the union did enough to completely eradicate this history. It seemed more so like a a battle between brothers, as opposed to two people, two sides that were vehemently against something, and that and that the South had to atone for what they did, their sin. And we come from a, a country of mindset that, yeah, slavery happened, but it's over with. Like, the fact that you think it was cool, it was fine, to enslave other human beings is just... And so this is the first part of what I call uh, hot takes. Um, this is Take It Down. Uh, next week, I'll be talking about, uh, uh, call it Take a Knee discussing the history of policing and police brutality and also the infusion of of sports and athletics into those type of uh protests discussing Colin Kaepernick taking the knee in 2016 and other uh, situations in which we fought against you know this type of mindset in this country as African Americans and so I hope you all enjoyed. I hope that this gets sent out to non-African Americans to know the true reasons behind why the Confederate flag is literally the similar, the same thing as a Nazi symbol. Why it should it should always be taken down. It should never be publicly displayed. Um, why anything associated with the Confederacy is not just treason, but it is specifically and only a sign of white supremacy. I hope you all enjoy and, and check us out next week for part two.